0: Well, good evening, L.C.M. Good evening. Not going to lie, tonight's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to shake up our format a little bit tonight. And those that are struggling to get off work and all of those things, you'll just have to help them. Because we're going to try to lay some groundwork in an introduction that is very, very different. See, we've spent a good portion of our introductions reviewing the gleanings that you've obtained up to this point. Our hope in being faithful to that practice was always aimed at being faithful to what Adonai has shown us. We want to be good stewards of the revelation he gives us. Tonight, however, we really want to focus on regaining some of the beauty of the narrative itself that so often suffers from us breaking it up with constant commentary on it. So we're going to dispense with reviews of slides and concepts and things like that and we're gonna jump straight into the story exactly as it was meant to be engaged, as a narrative. You should really want, and like in your inner being, with all of your heart,
1: <laughs>
0: to recapture the experience that the original audience had. Come on, Because they experienced suspense. Yeah. They, they were surprised when they got to the next line in the scroll. There are moments of jubilation, In the text. Oh, yeah. And we want you to encounter this amazing story as they encountered the story. And that takes an awful lot of work to do, given that we've spent weeks in it, and you've heard it your
2: whole life. All right, so let's start with a telling of the contiguous story of Esther in in the very beginning with some highlights. So the story began in Esther 1. Xerxes is the king of the whole world and the setting is opulent and even reminiscent of heavenly things. Yeah, Xerxes is described as remarkably generous and is building unity through gift-giving and tolerance. Now, the first major problem that the story encounters is a royal embarrassment for Xerxes. In the full view of every important person in the government, Vashti refuses to bring Xerxes glory by joining him in the efforts that he was making. How's that for honor at the city gate? Yeah, it's the opposite. This was seen by all, all as a threat to society and a problem that had to be addressed. What is not written in our story, but was known to the original audience, is that the purpose of all the lavish parties was that Xerxes needed to create a unified war effort. This military conflict took place between Esther 1 and 2.
3: So, Esther 2 picks up four years after this Vashti event. Xerxes, probably driven from pressure to complete what his father had failed to do, invaded Greece. He achieved his major objective in the burning of Athens, but... He also suffered a pretty serious loss at the Battle of Salamis. <laughs>
0: Got spanked.
3: Returning home from that battle is where the narrative picked up again in Esther chapter 2. Our story brought us to a man named Mordecai. Oh. Yeah. Yes. Who himself was of royal descent, but his line was tarnished. His character was immediately controversial and it was also immediately attractive to the original audience. Yeah. Because although he came from a disgraced line, his own character, guys, it was excellent. Yes. One of the endearing things about Mordecai is that he adopted his cousin who had become orphaned. Wow. Yeah.
4: Then the story shifted back to Xerxes who had suffered
3: the embarrassment of Ashti and the
4: discouragement of a loss at
0: Salamis. For Salamence. Salamence. He
1: was now looking for a bride, and Esther was chosen.
4: In the story, Esther's background is not known to Xerxes, and he seems to fall in love with the inner beauty of Esther's character
0: and action. She oh, yeah. was spiritually sexy. Ah, that's right. Now, Xerxes is so happy. Say so happy.
4: So, so happy. happy. He's so happy to have an honorable wife that he shows her favor, announces a holiday, suspends taxation, Come taxes, on! Yes! Taxes, and places a crown on her head. Meanwhile, Mordecai continues to have obvious affection for her because he shows up every day to check on her welfare.
5: Now, during one of those checkup visits, Mordecai undercovers a plot to assassinate Xerxes. And he moves quickly to have Esther intervene to save the king's life. Yeah, Mordecai had been at the king's gate, and discovered that two eunuchs were guarding the king's doorway, named Bixana and Teresh. Ooh, okay. and they had become angry and conspired to assassinate Xerxes. you mm. seen this quickly in the narrative for a reason. The report was found to be true, and those two men were hanged on gallows. gallows. It was recorded that Mordecai helped Xerxes with the assassination plot mm. in this way. Mordecai received... No discernible recognition for this act of valor as a result. Now strangely, even conspicuously, the next major event in the story, immediately afterwards, is a man named Haman rising Rising. to receive honor and a significant promotion Mm. immediately after the conspirators are hung on gallows. So Esther 3 then picks
0: up, Mm -hmm. and it goes on to show Haman... Continuing to rise rapidly in influence and favor is Xerxes' kind of right-hand man. While the reader understands that Haman is self-promoting and evil, Xerxes does not yet seem to be aware of these character flaws. The story is building toward conflict, and that conflict's initial trigger point is that Mordecai will not recognize Haman's newly elevated position or lower himself in honor of Haman. The biblical reader would understand that this conflict extends into ancient history because Haman was an Amalekite Mm. and Mordecai was a Jew. But anyone encountering this story for the first time would also have a lingering question or maybe even a suspicion in their minds about Haman's promotion and the rapid advancement following the assassination plot while Mordecai, who had acted so valiantly, went completely unnoticed. That would stand out to you, and it would bother you. In fact, it it bothered Peyton since day
2: one of our studies. (laughs) Then after that, Haman then persuades Xerxes to have a decree issued for the genocide of every one of Mordecai's relatives, anywhere that they live in the world. Xerxes has no idea, no idea that his treasured wife is one of those relatives. Surprisingly, neither does Haman. Yeah. (laughs) The die is cast, and the decree is issued. To build yet further tension in our story, when Xerxes' name is used in a decree, Persian law does not allow for it to be repealed. It is sealed. So the world is given a decree of annihilation in the name of Xerxes, and it is even sealed with Xerxes' ring. That happened to be on the hand of evil Haman at the time. (laughs) Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> now, chapter 3 ends with the city of Susa in total bewilderment, just like the readers of the original audience. And the reader in substantial suspense. There are a few questions that the original readers would have had. Will the Jewish nation survive? Mm. See, they don't know the end of the story yet. Right. Will the royal orphan queen escape the peril? Ooh. How did Haman manage to get promoted when Mordecai was the one who acted valiantly?
3: Good Good question.
2: Also, could Haman have secretly had something to do with the plot and Mordecai's refusal to bow been based on both a biblical conviction and a lingering suspicion? Those are some good questions right there. So, chapter 4.
3: As you can imagine, in chapter 4. Mordecai, at this time, is quite distressed. Yeah. Remarkably, though, he does not raise an army. He doesn't go to the newspapers and try to make his defense. No, he appeals in humility to his God with repentance and fasting. Esther becomes aware that something is terribly wrong with her cousin and adopted father. She tries to comfort him by a faithful friend named Attack. Yeah, there you go. And he was bringing clothing to him. However, Mordecai, he would not be comforted by any of those things. The talk then
4: begins to act as an intermediary and faithfully conveys every detail of Mordecai's predicament to Esther and the newly found predicament of Esther back to Mordecai. Whereas chapter 2 had dealt with an assassination plot on Xerxes, This story is now about the assassination or genocide of the queen and her entire people. Wow. Mordecai helps Esther to see that there is only one solution, and it requires her to risk everything she has gained so far in the story. Everything. More than that, it will require her to risk her life as she now must go again to the king.
5: Now that brought us to chapter 5, which was a riveting passage. It took us through the personal journey of Esther, from sackcloth to royal actions in only three days. Yeah. Anybody remember that? Yes. The tension in the story was palpable in the dramatic scene as she approached the king, not knowing whether she would live or die. Everyone encountering this vivid portrayal would have breathed a sigh of relief as the gold scepter was extended to her. And the cinematic tension was released from the pits or the depths of the souls of the audience that was in suspense.
0: As soon as we all caught our breath, (laughs) King Xerxes then asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Can you imagine the tension in the orphan queen's pause, no matter how brief that pause was? And then, what does she ask for? A banquet. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, This usually engenders a laugh from modern audiences. But that's because it's not your extermination that is on the line. Uh The tension for the original audience has reached yet another all-time high. Because Esther doesn't answer his question. This is in spite of the king's assurance several times that she could have half of the kingdom,
2: but she doesn't answer it. So... Was Esther losing her nerve? No. Why would she do this? What on earth was Esther waiting for? See, because you all said no,
0: because you know the end of the story. But if you didn't know that, wouldn't you be asking that question? Yes.
2: Let's talk about what's even more strange. The normal Persian feast hosted thousands of guests and Esther had asked for only the king and Haman to attend. This tension would have only been relieved in a minor way when Xerxes acquiesces to her request and agrees to the odd arrangement. So the scene moves to the banquet, and the enigmatic table is set. They are eating and drinking, Persian feast style. There is the king, his queen, and for an unknown reason, Haman. Awkward. <laughs> the situation is awkward. It is abnormal. It is weird. Yep. But it is happening. Yeah, and yeah, you're watching it. it. Then the inconceivable happens. King Xerxes asks her for a second time. Now what is your position? Your petition? What is your request? Can you feel the tension rebuilding as you engage with this petition?
1: <laughs> yes. It is
2: true the tone and demeanor of Xerxes is amenable after is. all. Yeah. yeah, he's kind. He keeps offering her half of the kingdom, but she is still not willing to say why they are all there. Will his patience end? And why will Esther not just stake the problem? Has brave Esther's resolve failed her? Uh-oh. Or is something else at play in the divine story? Perhaps Esther is searching the face of her husband, looking for an indication that Adonai has set the stage and prepared the king's heart in some way.
3: So Esther steps up to the line and lays it all on, yet one more banquet in only 24 hours' time, and tops it all off with a promise to answer his question at that time.
0: At that time.
3: However... She again requests the same peculiar guest list as the first time. What is up with this,
0: man? Yeah, so Martha really wants to talk to Todd. They've got a date set up at Ruth Chris, but she asks that Pastor Wade be there. And then they go through the whole date, and nothing comes of it. And he asks twice, hey, what do you want to talk about? Mm, let's do this again tomorrow.
3: Okay. Is
0: Pastor Wade going to be there again? (laughs) (laughs) Yep!
3: Same (laughs) cast, same (laughs)
0: set.
1: Now you guys are starting to get it. In between these two
3: banquets, in the interim, Haman and Mordecai continue to escalate their conflict, the conflict that they're in. Haman only grows in his anger. And Mordecai only grows in his resolve to defy Haman. Yeah. Haman goes home to his wife and to his counselors and embarks on an epic adventure of self-aggrandizement. Yeah. When you think his bravado simply cannot rise to a new level of hubris, (laughs) like he's reached the top of the top with himself, right? He actually says, and that's not all. Uh Of am the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave.
1: And
3: she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Oh. The counselor's confidences were emboldened by Haman's bluster and encouraged him to build gallows for the execution of Mordecai. Of course, no one present thought to ask the king for permission beforehand, before they made these plans. After all, Haman was undergoing a meteoric rise, and nothing, we mean nothing, could prevent him from achieving all of his ambitions now. So before
4: we move into chapter 6, imagine that you have not been hearing this story since you were a child. What kind of questions would be involved as you waited for the unveiling of the next episode? would ask questions like this. What is Esther going to ask for? (laughs) Why didn't Esther just go for the jugular during her first audience with the king? That's a good question. question. Why? When she got to the first dinner party and Haman was there, why didn't she lay out the case and make her defense? Or, if not that, why didn't she ask for the head of Haman on a platter? Yeah.
5: Are y'all awake? Yes! Yes. Are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. All right. Now that you've engaged with the audience a little bit, engaged with uh, Esther's thoughts and why she did what, perhaps the men in the room can work with me for a minute. Yeah. I want you to imagine what is going through Xerxes' mind, Hmm. what is happening in the mind of her husband, the king of the known world, the man that commands nations. This husband, he has a wife that he has always wanted. The one that demonstrates something he never had before. And she has risked her life to talk to you, husband, about something, but she's not telling you what it is yet. Ooh. And you've asked repeatedly. Now you're sitting here at the dinner table and you remember a chick named Artemisia, yeah, who also risked her life to talk to you about something. But at the very least, she said exactly what she thought on those occasions immediately, even if it was a bit brazen. In this kind of moment, would you be deeply concerned with what Esther, your beloved wife, would be so cautious in bringing up to you? Like, what is the gravity of it? We've come this far, and she still hasn't told me. I imagine you're beloved has asked for not one, but two of the most unusual, strange, awkward banquets that has ever occurred in your empire and in your culture as a Persian. And why on earth is
0: Haman
1: there?
0: I mean, if my wife keeps scheduling a dinner and she's asking for only one other male to be there, That could cause me to wonder what was happening. The only time that Xerxes would be able to remember that Esther had ever approached him before was involving an assassination plot back in chapter 2. Could that get your wheels turning, husbands? Yeah. Yeah. Would you be wondering if somebody was trying to kill you?
5: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Would you be wondering... What Haman has to do with any of this since he's the only dude on the entire guest list? Yes. Would you sleep well that night? No. We would ask you to interact with Haman's thoughts. But he's the only person in the scripture where we're repeatedly told what the thoughts of his heart were. We could summarize it for you. Haman thought he was great. I mean... Really great. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we're going to pray with these things in mind. And then we're going to move through the text as the story was actually written. Amen. Amen. Cody, why don't you stand and pray for us? Yeah. God, we sit excited.
5: God, we throw up the whole package, God, and we say, God, we're seeking your face. God, we need to show it to us more and more, God, as we lift up
2: our eyes
5: we
0: You're going to read Esther 6, 1 through 14.
6: That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded that there Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered in the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is, is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor now haman thought to himself who is there that the king would rather honor than me so he answered the king for the man the king delights to honor have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden one with a royal crest placed on its head then let the robe in the uh, then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princess. Let them, let, them, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what the, what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on a horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. His adversaries and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried Haman Away way to the banquet Esther had prepared.
0: Wow. So if we had to title this, it probably would have been Sleepless in Susa. <laughs> <laughs> and aside from the fact that the Persian spelling of Haman's name has a great big I and no U's in it, there are some things that we know that you as spirit-filled people picked up. And there are some things that we're quite sure that you've missed. And our goal in our introduction was to reconnect you to the whole story, and we want to continue to do that. So we're going to pick up, but break from tradition slightly. Mr. Linton is going to pick up in Esther 5.12 and read through 6.1 without acknowledging a chapter break of any kind, and you need to ignore it as you come to it.
7: Okay. And that's not all. Hey, Manette. i Person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning (laughs) to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king. To the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought to him, to be brought in and read to him. So, aside
0: from the similarities between Haman and Mick Jagger, who both can't find any satisfaction, what we're hoping to draw your attention to is the timing. The same night as the first banquet, where all of those tensions we discussed earlier and all of those questions were left unresolved. This scene is occurring hours after Esther's second refusal to answer her husband's questions. This scene is in the middle of the night, on the same night that the next banquet will occur. You can imagine why the king couldn't sleep, can't you? The Hebrew is even more emphatic than that, though. It says, that night, sleep fled from the king. Wow. Like, ran away, escaped him. So why was sleep running away from him? The churchy answer is so easy, and it misses the dramatic point. When we say, well, you know it was God. God wouldn't allow him to sleep. That's functionally true, but it's not what the text Says. The better question would be, by what mechanism does the Lord achieve the sleepless night
2: in Susa? We believe the answer is through the course of human interactions. In the introduction tonight, we suggested some reasonable questions that would have been rolling through both the reader's mind and Xerxes' mind. Reasonable questions like, the wife you have always... The wife you have always wanted has risked her life to talk with you about something, and she will not tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. You also remember that Artemisia had risked her life to give you good advice on not one, but two occasions, but she at least said exactly what she thought on those occasions. Would you be deeply concerned with what Esther could be so cautious about bringing up? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Your beloved wife has asked for not one, but two of the most unusual banquets that have ever occurred in your empire and your culture. Why on earth is it important to her for Haman to be there? Good question. And you'd be remembering something like the only time that you can remember that Esther has ever approached you before was involving an assassination plot no. back in chapter 2. Would you be wondering if someone was trying to kill you? Yeah. Yeah. Would you be wondering what Haman has to do with any of this as the only one on the guest list? Yeah. Yeah. Would you sleep well that night?
8: No, not.
2: Most people seem to assume that the king can't sleep.
3: And his request to have the chronicles read to him was pertaining to one of two things. Either he was an incredible narcissist and liked to hear about himself... Or, a monotonous reading
0: was better than counting sheep for putting a man to sleep. You know, Pastor Nick, I think that's because we view him like our politicians. Ah. I go to sleep every time I hear the democratic achievements no. of the first year of this presidency. Oh, that's a
3: great point. Unfortunately, these approaches don't do justice to the text or to the overall story. And we've got a slide to help illustrate that for you. Vivre Hayemim.
2: A plus. Yes.
3: Word or things of the days. The book of the Chronicles is a detailed accounting for all of the things that occurred on any given day within the reign of Xerxes. That means it's a huge work, guys. This is a big Chronicles list here. Wow. Listen to this reference by Chuck Missler, Book of Chronicles. Historiographers were attached to the Persian court and attended the monarch wherever he went. We find them noting down facts for Xerxes at Doriscus and again at Salamis. They kept a record like the Axe Duran of the early Roman Empire. Cessius claimed to have drawn his Persian history from these chronicles. Our point is that by this time in our story, Xerxes has been reigning 12 years and this book was quite expansive.
0: Huge!
3: There's a lot of writing in there. There was a lot of things that the king did in 12 years. Most commentators act as if it were sheer accidental providence that Xerxes lands on a particular passage in the book. Their motivations are admirable. They make this assertion to emphasize the great hand of Adonai in these events. We believe That the truth speaks of Adonai in even greater terms. Mm -hmm. Adonai has used the lingering questions, the innate suspicions that are growing within Xerxes to cause him to want to research a specific event in a very large compilation. Meaning he said, I want to hear about this event right here during this time. The event was during the seventh year of his reign. And it was actually five years in Xerxes' past of where we're reading right now. Five years previously. That's a very, very specific time frame and a very specific event. It was the last time his wife came to talk with him about a conspiracy to assassinate him. Notice the wording in the next verse, verse
7: 2. It was found recorded that Mordecai had exposed Bikhtan and Teresh to Of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So the phrase it was
4: found can mean accidentally, but it can also mean intentionally, as in searched for and discovered. Again, when commentators treat this as an accident, they are attempting to show Adonai's hand at work in what seems otherwise coincidental. But we believe that it is even more beautiful than that. Should I continue? Yeah! Yeah. (laughs) Xerxes was suspicious and perplexed by unanswered questions. Sleep was literally running away from him. It seems that he has a suspicion that these banquets may have something to do with the assassination plot that the author of Esther intentionally clues us into back in chapter 2, but he probably is not sure why just yet. So in the night between banquet number one, where Xerxes asks, twice what Esther wanted, and twice was denied an answer. He is now researching the last time Esther came to him with an important detail, and it had to do with an attempt to overthrow his kingdom. That'll
0: get your attention.
4: (laughs) And now he is preparing for banquet number two. Now, in his preparation for banquet number two, Xerxes realizes that mistakes were made by his administration. We don't know what that's like. He knows now that Haman was promoted rapidly, but can't remember if anything was done for
5: Mordecai, who actually saved his life. All right, you guys catching that? Yes. Yes. The surprise is not that there was an assassination attempt, not that Esther had come to him once before, but who was actually the one who saved him, and he's trying to recall now that I feel like there might be an assassination attempt, did I take care of the people who helped me last time? His wheels are turning. So let's move forward to verse 3 together, Brother Linton.
7: What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. Shock! you got to love some friends in attendance
5: that give you the brutal, honest truth. Yes! The shock for Xerxes is that this was not handled appropriately. Mm-hmm. So let's review the specific wording of the transition between Esther chapter 2, where the assassination plot was uncovered, and then the meteoric rise of Haman in Esther 3. Saints, this is important because the story was never meant to be dissected into chapters. Mm-hmm. So look, even if you're just hearing us read it, pretend there is no chapter break and just hear the flow of the original narrative. Esther 2, 21-3 During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was reported in the Book of the Annals and the Presence of the King. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, Zahmahamadah, the Achaite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles saints, it is so important that we don't read these scenarios like we are reading an owner's manual to a car. These are real people with real emotions and real reactions when lives are on the line. What do you think Xerxes' inner dialogue looks like during these discoveries? Consider this for a minute. He's sitting here realizing this, that Haman was immediately elevated from these things, and he was just shocked to find out Mordecai is the one who saved him, and nothing was done for him. What? I bet he's wondering whether or not Haman can be trusted, because it sounds like he's been in a a glorified position since that moment in history. Mm. I bet he's questioning the reason for Haman's attendance at the banquets, since there's his whole peculiar event surrounding an assassination plot and Haman's rise. Maybe, maybe he suspects that there was deception in that meteoric rise of this Amalekite that is not a Persian and somehow is risen in the kingdom. Yeah. I bet he's sleeping with a sword under his pillow, to be honest. <laughs> Are you thinking about this for a minute? When this is jogging to mind, is the last time that tendons near him were trying to kill him? Yeah. He's probably tense at this point. He's preppy. But in any case, what he does know is that he loves Esther. Yeah. And he is now sure after reviewing the history that Mordecai can be trusted even if he's not sure about everyone else.
0: Are y'all engaging with us now? To understand the next scene in our drama, you'll need to visualize the nature of proximities. Mm. These two eunuchs guarded the threshold. That is, they guarded the entrance to the king's private living quarters in the palace. FRCL and ITCL say that they guarded the entrance to the royal apartments. An equivalent expression may be the sleeping place of the king. The king normally slept in something like a royal apartment. And he had guardians of the doorway that were placed between him and those who would enter the palace from an outer court and then proceed to the inner court next to his sleeping chambers. Not only is he reading about those guardians plotting to assassinate him five years earlier, but he's been unable to sleep all night and is probably standing in his chambers with an empty inner court right next to it, and he's just heard something stirring in the outer court. Remember, he's been up all night, and he's contemplating perilous things. Even the best of us might be slightly paranoid in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably just before sunrise right now. From a Western perspective, it's our tendency to view Xerxes' sleeping quarters as a remote residence and him commuting to his royal place of business. Like Mr. Colgate. But that's, but that's not representative of the way that Persians live his sleeping chambers were right next to his throne. His throne room was probably immediately outside of his bedroom, and the outer court was just beyond that. This would mean that in the early morning hours, when everything was still and quiet, and the king is understandably unsettled, he very well may have heard the commotion of someone coming into the outer court. Now, that's all speculation, but do you know what is not speculation? The exact wording of his question in verse 4. Let's pick up in verse 4.
7: The king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he
2: had erected for him. Notice that Xerxes does not ask, hey, is anyone in the court? But rather he asks, who is in the court? Like he might be expecting a particular someone. Now the NLT may have actually captured the sense of what is happening. Let's take a look at this next slide. We did this for you, Charlie. The NLT may, maybe, might have gotten something right. Chapter 6, verse 4. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. So, if this is correct, and it is,
0: it is, <laughs> it is.
2: That would mean that the very moment that Xerxes determined that Mordecai could be trusted, and Haman may need to be viewed with some level of suspicion. Haman just arrives to talk with Xerxes about him failing Mordecai on a tree. In our view, this is an even greater display of the mastery of Adonai over human affairs. Our great God is using the questions in Xerxes' mind and the growing suspicions to drive him towards a climactic conclusion. In the very same moment, our God is using the eagerness of Haman... To destroy Mordecai to drive the situation to its climactic resolution. Now Xerxes has often been criticized for his reliance on logistics and his presumed lack of tactical awareness. But what happens next is an incredible display of tactical wisdom like Holy Spirit led counseling wisdom on the part of King Xerxes. Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Because we Suspect that you might never have noticed this detail as you are about to hear it in verse 5, or at least its implications. His
7: attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man, the king, that likes to honor? We know that you guys have read this text
3: many times, and that you have engaged with it. However, Have you considered that the king deliberately omits the name Mordecai from his question? Yes. Like, on purpose, he does not say Mordecai? Yes. You have to ask yourself why Xerxes didn't tell Haman, hey, I was reading and noticed that Mordecai wasn't honored for something he did earlier. What should I do for Mordecai? No, he doesn't say it like that, does he? True. Instead, Xerxes deliberately Leaves the question vague, so that he would have the means to test Haman's loyalty and ensure the truthfulness of his answer. We think that he did this because of the growing suspicions surrounding Haman that are beginning to formulate in Xerxes' mind at this point. Xerxes has just discovered or found in the writings that Mordecai went unacknowledged during the same time period that Haman experienced rapid promotion, a rapid rise. <laughs> While we are speculating regarding these aspects of Xerxes' thoughts, and we think that you will agree that we're right in our speculations, we do not have to speculate about Haman's thoughts. No, in fact, the author of Esther wants you to know the concealed motives of Haman in advance of them being revealed to the king. An astute, Biblical student, which is many of you, I would say most of you by far, you might notice that this is not dissimilar to the way that Adonai deals with Satan throughout the biblical narrative. The reader is aware that nefarious intent is present, but the scripture gives no indication that God is aware. Until the trap is set, Satan is exposed in the ministry of Jesus. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves tonight just yet. (laughs) We're only bringing this up because the consistent imagery throughout Esther is that Xerxes is a shadow and a type of Adonai. That fact is missed by nearly everyone due to their Western cultural bias.
7: So let's pick back up in verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Me. So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. So this is a great opportunity to drop
4: the classic quote on you. He who loves himself shall have no rivals. Now, but, so we're not focusing on Haman's pride, we want you to notice something else. The brilliance of Xerxes' question, tactically, is that by omitting Mordecai's name, he has succeeded in revealing something about Haman's own heart and his ambitions. You probably gleaned gleaned some facet of that in your reading, but the implication of Haman's statement goes much deeper than you may have realized. And this is what we mean. Look at... ...how Xerxes' father became king of Persia. This is Darius Hystaspes and the horse. Deciding eventually on a monarchy, they organized a test by which to decide who should be king. All except Otanes, who had no wish to be king, gathered on horseback at sunrise... ...and declared that whichever of their horses first neighed to greet the sun... That man should be king. (laughs) Darius told his horse master of this decision, and the man assured him that he could engineer Darius' ascension. Two Ah. versions of of his scheme exist. One says that during the night, he tied a mare, a particular favorite of Darius' stallion, which was also in heat, (laughs) near where the test would take place. And the other saying that he rubbed his hands all over the mare and stood nearby when the test began. (laughs) Whatever the method, Oyvares transferred the scent of the mare and Darius Stallion, catching it, neighed loudly. The others proclaimed, Darius king.
5: So in every way possible, Haman is asking for the symbols of the monarchy to be associated with him. We're going to work through this for a moment. Haman has asked for the royal clothing that has been worn by the king. Mm -hmm. Haman has asked for the or the a horse that the king has ridden, or possibly the horse Mm -hmm. that the king rides. Haman specifically asked for a horse with the royal crest, the symbol of reign and monarchy, on the head of the horse. Now, in case you doubt the audaciousness of this request, if you think we're making too much of an old fable about how Xerxes' father came into being. We want you to consider that a statue stood in the time of Xerxes with this inscription upon it that would have been present for this conversation. This is our next slide. He had a statue made of himself, this being Darius' his father, his father, mounted on his stallion, which read, Darius, son of Histastes, obtained the sovereignty of Persia by the sagacity of his horse. And the ingenious contrivance of Obiaris, his groom. Huh. That was this a monument. An actual monument that existed. Wow. So whether the details of the story are true or not, what they wanted you to know was I obtained kingship through this kind of ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it is present when Haman is making his request. Wow. Haman's request for a horse the king has ridden, or the horse, mm. in Hebrew, lacks an indefinite article And the translator has to decide whether we're talking about a horse that has been ridden or the horse. In this case, it is irrelevant because Haman specifically wants a horse that the king has ridden and has the other symbols associated with it. Now, if you were Xerxes in this moment and you had some lingering suspicions about Haman, about his motives or the extent of his ambitions, because this man has risen and climbed the ranks of the ladder and you're starting to wonder... How ambitious is he? What would you be thinking in this moment? Mm. Well, for one, he wants your clothing. He also wants your horse, which in your history, your direct father is inextricably linked to your right to rule the Persian Empire. And he wants the horse to bear the royal crest while he rides it. Does he really want your whole kingdom as well? I mean, is that what he's asking for here? (laughs) Well, if you think those issues might... Pull like you know minutely at the corners of Xerxes' mind, just just a little bit. Then what happens next probably cemented his concerns deeply in his mind. We're going to pick up in verse nine, Lintot.
7: Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, "This is what is done." For the man, the king, the likes, the honor.
0: Wow. Now it's been a long time since I was in seventh grade English, but we have some subject-verb agreement issues here. We're not going to bog down in linguistics tonight, but we're not talking about a singular prince doing this for Haman. The Hebrew verbs are all plural in this construction, mm-hmm. which is why verse 9 says, Let them robe the man, not let him This means that what Haman is actually asking for is to have all of the most noble princes be seen in the public view robing Haman and seating Haman on the symbols of the monarchy. So again, if you were Xerxes in this moment, what do you imagine is going through your mind? Xerxes probably has a son at this point. Does Haman mean to include my son with the noble princes? Most noble. Most noble princes? Is he, I mean, Haman is already a high-ranking guy, but is he now aiming to the only height that he hasn't achieved, my throne? Does this man intend to steal like he stole the honor and the credit from Mordecai for saving my life? Will he now only be satisfied if he gets my throne?
3: Next you're going to tell me he wants my wife.
0: (laughs) Fast forward chapter 7. Is this what Esther wants to talk to me about? Is this why she's being so cautious? It's not just a couple eunuchs that are a problem? It must be why she wants to talk to me. Why else would she insist on having him at the banquet? Are you all engaging with the story? Yes. yes. I think given those facts, all in all, Xerxes is displaying incredible patience <laughs> yeah. and tactical brilliance. Because there's at least one more way that he can test the growing theory in his mind relating to suspicion of Haman. Unfortunately for us, Haman seems to pass this next test. And That only results in more unresolved tension when they arrive at the next banquet. But that's next week. Let's look at the actual test in verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Henry. Get the
7: robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew (laughs) who sits
2: at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. All right. If this was a movie... And if there were ever a mic drop moment, this is it. Can you imagine the difficulty that Haman is experiencing internally as this statement flows from Xerxes' mouth? He thinks that Xerxes is talking about himself. He's puckered tightly. All of this is amplified by the fact that Xerxes is watching him for any tells in Haman's reaction. Now, if we're... To find anything praiseworthy in Haman, it is this one thing. He is a very skilled deceiver.
0: It's like being forced to find something praiseworthy about Satan and saying, well, he's busy.
2: (laughs) He's a skilled deceiver because what he does next must have taken all the strength in his dark little heart could muster. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't do what the king says then he will confirm every one of the growing suspicions in the king's mind. Now before we move on, it is also important to notice the way that Xerxes needles Haman in the specific use of the words. He said, do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. This is the first time in the book that Mordecai is announced as the The Jew. Jew. Now, it is true that his background was known and therefore was not a secret, but now it is being announced like a title rather than an insult. Oh, wow. Now, the book of Esther does this a total of five times, and the first one is this <laughs> statement straight from the mouth of Xerxes himself, and it is being spoken directly to the adversary. So let's pick on and pick up in verse 11. Are y'all engaging with oh, us? Yeah. 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 you got all of this in
0: your casual reading, right? No. 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 No, I think
7: so Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, <laughs> proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. <laughs> Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home <laughs> with his head covered in grief
0: might have even smeared something in his hair.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and told of his wife, and all his friends everything that has happened to him. His advisors and his wife said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin.
2: You are going to jail now?
7: There are so many tangents that we want to share at this
3: point. We're going to get to most of them. But it's important that we grasp the narrative first. Why is Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief? Well, you would think that it's just because he felt humiliated having to do this for Mordecai, right? Isn't
0: that what you thought?
1: Yes. yes.
3: And that is true. But it's far less than 10% of what's actually happening here. The responses of his secret counsel actually tell you the other 90%. Look at what the advisors and Zeresh said to him. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. What is it about this one act That signals the downfall and the ruination of Haman in their eyes. Good question, right? Yeah. (laughs) The reader has been wondering this entire time if Haman's rise to power was based on deceiving Xerxes and stealing credit from Mordecai. But Haman's family and advisors knew that to be the case the entire time. They probably helped him engineer it. When this secret cabal saw Mordecai honored, and Haman having to lead him through the streets, they assume that Xerxes was fully aware of Haman's fraudulent rise to power, mm-hmm. as well as his secret ambition. Yep. So they tell him plainly,
0: Your downfall has started.
3: You will surely come to ruin. Wow.
0: Yeah, the the next year's NIV will say, You are Fubar. <laughs> 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 Sanatural. Sanatural. Something that's been set into motion that, in their view, cannot be undone now.
3: Can't stop
4: it. So if you have any doubts about our own speculations throughout this teaching, we hope you were kind to us. Because the reaction of Haman's family proves the assertions that we have been making. If this had been about a singular moment when Haman suffered in his pride and Mordecai was honored... There would be no reason for his own wife and advisors to proclaim his certain downfall and ruination. What is happening is that the secret council believes that Xerxes is now aware that Haman's rise to power was fraudulent, and they are also scared about what that means for them since they were effectively co-conspirators. This is even more dramatic given that they have already built gallows, In their own backyard,
0: (laughs) (laughs) and the last time we saw gallows.
3: Uh
4: (laughs) 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 So you guys can feel the tension in the setting. This is a very tense situation. They might have been thinking about escaping or catching transit out of the country, but they don't have time to do anything before
7: verse fourteen happens. (laughs) All right, brother Lincoln, (laughs) read it for us. While they were still waiting to talk with him, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried, payment away to the banquet Esther it prepared. <laughs> we have
0: a slide for you. Have
7: you! Ever heard the words,
5: when it rains, it pours? Yeah. Yeah. The Saints, once again, it is not our goal to bog down into technical details this evening. We're trying to catch the narrative with you. But about half of the English translation present the king's eunuchs hurrying to take Haman away, and the other half present the king's eunuchs hurrying Haman away. The word in play here is on the screen now. The word itself implies a hurried, terrified, dismayed, immediately, or spurred state of being. So the question is, are the eunuchs the ones that are hurried and terrified? (laughs) Or is it Haman, that is being hurried and terrified. Or perhaps a little of both. No matter how you decide to answer that particular question, we think that it's clear that Haman was scared at the very least. It is even possible to read the verses while they were still talking with him, the king's units arrived and hurried or terrified Haman away to the banquet. Something is happening in this setting and you can feel the tension through the language itself. Now, while his counselors were discuss- discussing his downfall this happened, he suddenly had to go to the banquet that he had previously been eager to attend, right. even bragging about, and now is so eager to avoid because terror struck it. My God, what a difference 24 hours can make. <laughs> this is why we have been talking to you about the royal disposition of a Christian that does not descend into planning and manipulation is enough that we just entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. What a difference 24 hours can make if we do this without fear. I think we can all agree that this is what the Bible actually calls beautiful. Amen.
0: So our format's been a little different tonight. And we've worked hard to maintain the continuity of the dramatic themes in this chapter. The point was to avoid dissection that causes you to lose the impact of the narrative. We hope that we achieved that and that you learned something from the story just by way of engaging with it as an actual story. Did anybody pick up details so far? Oh yeah. Yeah. Good. So we've now read every verse at least twice this evening and we want to use the balance of our time well. We think that you're gaining a greater level of engagement with this beautiful book and it's time to acknowledge your homework and then draw your attention to some amazing shadows and types that are within chapter six. Let's start by thanking Jaron and Andrew Hayes. As far as people that came to me they were the only two that nailed the homework. Although I did hear there was honorable mention given to counselor who squeezed his homework in just before the gavel dropped, (laughs) I just didn't see it. (laughs) Last session, we said, if you think that it is strange to invite people to a feast and know that it will be their ultimate downfall, we want to give you a challenge in your homework. Read Ezekiel 39 and then compare it with Revelation 19. Now, for those of you, how many of you worked on that a little bit? The connection was that Esther, Ezekiel, and Revelation all feature nobles, heads of nations, who are coming to what they believe are their victory over the Jewish people. And yet the actual setting in all three books, is a feast that was designed by God himself. The kicker is that in Ezekiel and Revelation, the feast is literally their own physical destruction. In fact, in Ezekiel and Revelation, those nobles are the feast. They're what's being eaten. And in the same moment, in all three books, it is the salvation of God's people. Amen. So it's not all of that strange or unusual to expect salvation at a banquet, is it? Right. We want to draw your attention to some noteworthy themes within Esther 6. We've got about 55 minutes, so some of them will take a lot of time on and some not very much time on. Would you all like to see some of the shadows and types present in it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
2: So the first noteworthy theme. Is that everything that Haman asks for in this chapter is said to be Malkut? Do you guys remember that word? Yes. In Esther 6 7 says, So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a Malkut robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a Malkut crest placed on its head. Now in Esther 5, You learned that Esther put on royalty or she put on Malchut, which you learned was the kingdom, authority, reign, dominion, monarchy and royalty that is derived from heaven. But now you see in Esther six, Haman as an Amalekite asking to be robed in these Malchut things and seated on a crown horse representing those things. Now, this goes all the way back to the law in Numbers 24 2-7. through seven. Listen to this passage. When Balaam looked out and saw
3: Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him. That's significant because other times it doesn't denote the Spirit of God.
0: Actually, divination.
3: Yep. And he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes Eye sees clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are open. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom, Mahut, will be exalted. The law anticipates and foretells the great conflict that is present in the story of Esther. This statement is a prophecy about Agag, who is not yet born. This statement is a prophecy about the coming king, who is existent but not yet incarnate. This first and foundational use of the word malhut is setting the stage for a generational conflict between the descendants of the Amalekites and the descendants of Jacob. Only one of them will be be given the kingdom, authority, reign, dominion, monarchy, and royalty that is derived from heaven. And we'll give you a hint. It's not going to be the Amalekites. Not going to be Agag. Not going to be Haman.
0: Although they asked
3: but it will be the king coming from Jacob. Amen. Amen. In many ways, this theme is the stage of the entire biblical narrative, which is a struggle that involves Adonai and his bride in opposition to Satan and his proxies. So, so what is happening to Haman the Amalekite is what will happen to Satan and
4: his proxies. And that's right. Let's look at another one. We have a slide. You remember this from the NLT, Esther 6.4. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. Now in this verse, Haman can be seen with a desire in his heart to crucify Mordecai. In the passage, the desire is never verbally expressed, but the king is aware that Haman is not working in the interest of the king.
6: Although that is also
4: not expressly stated, it's just inferred. But the Lord begins to set the same kind of trap all the way back,
5: and guess where? The law. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 is where we're going to pick up. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it, that same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So if you don't already know the whole story, it is a strange thing to write into the law that a person hung on a tree or a pole is cursed by God. But you guys do know the end of the story. Galatians
0: 3.13 puts it this way. Christ redeemed us From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who was hung on a pole. We thought this was fitting for the Passion Week that we're in right now. In the story of Esther, Haman's desire to crucify Mordecai ended up being his own undoing. He's eager. He can't wait. He gets there and he's the first in the palace. And Adonai has arranged it so that the king is already suspicious of him. And the king has become aware of of Mordecai's righteousness. Yeah. So Satan's desire to have Jesus crucified and cursed by God also ends up being Satan's
2: own undoing. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. Are you starting to pick it up now? So both stories feature a villain that ends up being exposed by their own desire to crucify a Jew. Mordecai is saved from the crucifixion and then saves his people temporarily. But Jesus is actually crucified and saves his people eternally. So as you
0: engage with that a little bit, because we've got more for you. If Mordecai had had any idea what the king was doing all night, if the if Mordecai not Mordecai, if Haman had any idea what the king was doing all night, if he knew that Mordecai was just discovered to be trustworthy and he was under suspicion, do you really think that he would have wanted to walk into that courtroom? No, no probably not. His own eagerness to harm a Jew was His undoing. The Gospels portray Satan in exactly the same light. Do y'all see that? Would you like to do another one?
3: (laughs) Guys, this next one is going to be incredibly revelatory for a lot of you in the room. You guys ready for it? This is going to fix some theology tonight. Xerxes is aware that Haman is dirty well before he is actually judged and exposed. Most Christians miss this because they don't understand that God did the same exact thing with Satan. Nor do they see any parallel between Xerxes and God. However, when you examine it, there are many parallels. We've gone over a bunch of those here. Let's start by acknowledging that our timing for Satan's fall is usually dramatically wrong. Look at this slide. This on the right is a picture of a work, a poem called Paradise Lost by John Milton. The title of this slide is Total Fiction That Has Been Accepted as Fact. As we read through this slide, I want you to consider that you might have have accepted some of this fiction as fact in your previous quote-unquote religious studies. This work was published in 1667. Satan, formerly called Lucifer. Who's heard that before? Oh, yeah, Lucifer, Satan. The Bible doesn't teach it, but this poem does. It's the first major character introduced in the poem. He was once the most beautiful of all the angels and is a tragic figure who famously declares, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven Following his failed rebellion against God, he is cast out from heaven and condemned to hell. Milton presented this as happening prior to the Garden of Eden. False. Guys, Christians accepted Milton's fiction that Satan's name was Lucifer, even though, as Elder Eric said, the Bible doesn't say it. Christians accepted that Satan was an angel. Even a beautiful (laughs) angel, sometimes a worship leader, he had a heart, even though the Bible doesn't say it. Christians accepted that Satan rules from hell, and that it is his headquarters, even though the Bible does not say that. Tragically, Christians accepted that Satan fell prior to Genesis chapter 2, which the Bible demonstrably teaches against. We're going to get to that too. The exact opposite is true. Satan is presented in the scripture as a spiritual being that is working with Yahweh in something like a district attorney or prosecutor's role. Not all that unlike Haman working with Xerxes. Wow. Okay. So let's go
4: further. We have some slides that we just want to look at to jog your memory. In Job 1, Satan stands before the Lord and says, where have you been? And says, have you considered my servant Job? It's like, well, you put this hedge of protection around him. If you strike him, then he'll curse you to your face. And then in Job 2, the Lord says again, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. Now, this picture starts to get very clear in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Now, let's look at this slide from our Ezra study. 2 Samuel 24,
5: 1. So just building a little imagery as we come to this slide. In the last two, in Job, you have Satan entering the presence of the king. You guys remember in Esther chapter 1 how the imagery was of metals, colors, images that all depicted the heavenly realms? Yeah. Yeah. And Haman ends up passing freely in the king's presence and then out of the king's presence? Yeah. Well, that same kind of to-and-fro language in heavenly depiction is heavily present within Esther. Now, this next one that Peyton was bringing up, Ezra helping us. This is from 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. There are parallel passages about the exact same event. You can see in 2 Samuel 24, it says the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 21, it says Satan. Hmm. How is that possible? Well, it's very much like Haman wearing Xerxes' ring on his finger when issuing the decree of annihilation. Yep. It's in the name of Xerxes, in the name of the Lord, but it's an agent that is currently acting under his behalf. It's not really Xerxes' desire to wipe out Esther and Mordecai who saved his life, but nonetheless it's still being done in his name, and Ezra seems to want for you to know that fact. Now, in our story, Xerxes has not yet exposed Haman and judged him, But in this next slide, you're going to get an idea for what is coming in our narrative as it matches the same pattern and type.
0: In the same way that the reader has suspicions about Haman, and you're wondering whether the king knows, and most of Christendom has missed it for most of the ages reading the book until the seventh chapter where he is exposed, we misunderstand God, and because he doesn't overtly... uh, Proclaim Satan evil, it's, it's awkward for us. You assume that it must have happened before the story started or some other possibility. Well, Zechariah 3 begins with Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Do you know what happens right after this? They put clean clothing, righteous apparel on Joshua. These parallels are actually incredible. This messianic passage in Zechariah is occurring between 557 and 525. Ezra's recording Chronicles roughly 100 years later. Hmm. Ezra has the benefit of having read Zechariah's work. And he tells us when he's putting together Chronicles, this wasn't the Lord. This was an agent of the Lord, Satan, who did this. And the first time in the entire biblical narrative that you become aware, if you're reading the book like we're reading Esther, that God knows something's wrong with Satan is in the book of Zechariah. That means that we went for thousands of years, leaving the reader in suspense. But in Zechariah, we have the very first rebuke an indication that something is wrong with Satan and he's not a good agent of God. Mm -hmm. Most Christians have no understanding of that. What happens then is this passage could be seen as a parallel to Xerxes causing Haman... To suffer public rebuke by leading Mordecai in royal robes through the city. Satan is rebuked and royal robes are put on Joshua. Here Haman is being rebuked and royal robes are put on Mordecai. The story of Esther is going to heat up rapidly in the next chapter. But to foreshadow those events, remember that Satan was not a named enemy in the biblical narrative Until the Newer Testament time, Mm -hmm. just as Haman has always been an enemy, but went unnamed through Esther chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and will be named as an enemy of the king in chapter 7.
2: Are you all getting it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Let's get to how Satan tipped his hand. Alright, so in the Newer Testament, Satan begins to tip his hand. In Luke 4 five through seven, he's speaking with Jesus. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, what are we seeing here? First off, Luke uses the word devil in parallel with the term Satan that is used in Mark for the same parallel passage. Now, Satan here is claiming to have authority over the kingdoms of the world, but that's not true. And he is openly soliciting worship for the first time in recorded history, much like Haman is soliciting royalty in worship. And Satan can't help it. He's making his position more clear by his actions. And this, in this passage, Satan is not using a proxy like he has done so many times in the past. But he is actually doing it himself. He's tipping his hand. So in this passage, we can see that Satan, much like the Amalekite Haman believes that he actually has the Malchut and that he deserves it and it should be his and that the Jews would need to receive it from him. And the truth is that the Jews are destined for it. And both the Gospels and Esther display a great king setting the trap to reveal the adversary and bestow Malchut on the people of God. That's what we are seeing in Esther is that a trap is being set for Haman. Now, Jesus' ministry is the public exposing of the Haman-like adversary. Yep. Just as chapter 7 is the public exposing of Haman. Y'all following us so far? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's the chronology in the Newer <laughs> Testament?
3: So, in John 12, 30-33, it says, Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Moving there to the next chapter in John, John 13, 27... Satan
0: enters into Judas. You can't say in John 12, 30, now the prince of this world will be driven out if it occurred in Genesis' primordial past. Oh, wow. It's now because now means yeah. Now.
3: now. Yeah, exactly, and it hadn't happened yet. John 14, 30 through 31, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. And then John 16, 11, The prince of this world now stands condemned. Guys, the ultimate trap for Satan and the ultimate trap for Haman was when they both had the intention of crucifying an innocent Jew. That's when they really started getting themselves in trouble. What we love most about the parallels is that in Esther and in the Newer Testament, listen to this. In Esther and in the newer testament The king utilized his bride Somebody say his bride His, his bride. bride The king utilized his bride To bring about the ultimate defeat Hello. Of his enemies uh, Come Every on somebody
4: hand hand. Hand. Now wasn't that a good parallel Yes. You guys want to do another one uh, yes. Yes. So let's look at Judas and Haman Because both men shared
1: in the ministry of the king However Both of them began to be exposed
4: as evil at a dinner party. And in the parallel, they each went to two dinner parties. Listen to John 12, 2-6. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, He used to help himself to what was put into it. Remember, at dinner party number one, Haman was a suspect but not yet exposed as overtly evil. The same is true of Judas. In both cases, the reader is aware of an issue but has to wait to see if the great king is going to resolve the
1: problem.
0: See, do you have the same tension building in you? When we're talking to you about Xerxes' suspicion of Haman and the way that it's building, then you're like, then why didn't he just do something about it? Well, Jesus also knew this about Judas. But he didn't just do something about it. There are actually two dinner parties. This was the first dinner party, and Judas is going to tell you about the next dinner
5: party where Judas is exposed. Jesus knew the entire time, right? you understand that? Yes. The author, John, wants you to know as you're reading it that he was dirty from the beginning. That's why you're getting the little captions throughout the story. But what exposed the character of Judas? A woman who had become the bride of Christ and showed extraordinary, reverent, Submission to the king He knew the whole time But his bride was the key To revealing the actual Condition of the betrayer So watch how this progresses In Matthew 26 Verse 20 When the evening came Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve And while they were eating He said I tell you the truth One of you will betray me More awkward tension around A banquet They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. (laughs) Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. See, it was at the end of the second dinner party. It's in this tension and this time in between that both Haman and Judas were definitively exposed as the wicked betrayer. The death of both men also has some extraordinary parallels between them. Y'all want to hear about the death of both men? Yes. Yes.
0: Before we do that, engage with the concept (laughs) <laughs> Judas also knew he was the betrayer beforehand. Yeah. He acts like he's finding out right now. But he's already made the arrangements. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus nor Judas are finding out right now. They're both finding out that the other knows about it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, that's also the exact setting of Esther 7. Would you like to move to the death of Judas? Yes. Yeah. This is pretty wild. Matthew 27, 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and laughed. And then he went away and hanged himself. Wow. You already know that throughout the book of Esther, some Bibles mention gallows and others describe it as an impaling pole. That is because the exact method of execution is often multifaceted. Look at the way that Acts describes the death of Judas and then you will easily make the connection to Haman. In Acts 1 16 through 19, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language akodama, that is field of blood. See, both Judas and Haman died in what is described as a hanging, but actually involves some sort of self impalement. Their guts burst open. Would you
2: like another one? Yes. Yes. Are you sure? Yes. All right, one of Pastor Eric's favorites is that the salvation of the Jewish people and the Messiah figure are always announced by someone who prepares the way before them. Take a look at Joseph's life in Genesis 41, 41 through 43. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had made him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So recognize this. Prior to recognizing Joseph as the savior of the Jewish people and the world, the reigning king, made a messenger go before him to prepare the way everywhere he went. Now, this was also true of Jesus in the ministry of John the Immerser. Listen to Luke chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. But what
3: did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So again, before the Jewish Messiah was seen as the Savior of his people or of the world, someone had to go before him to announce and prepare the way. This makes Haman going before Mordecai an amazing fulfillment of this imagery. Haman had no desire for the salvation of Israel, just as Satan does not. And yet everything that both Haman and Satan do to oppose Israel actually only ends up preparing the way of salvation before their Messiah. You could call Haman an unwilling John the Baptist. (laughs) right this no doubt is part of the public spectacle that Satan ends up being as well despite all his efforts to stop Messiah all that Satan did was prepare a
0: way before him come on somebody that's good isn't it you guys want to do another one yes
4: alright so when Suresh says to Haman that since Mordecai before, before whom your downfall has ...is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Mm. The wording is actually very fun in Hebrew. Where your Bible says downfall, say downfall. Downfall! The Hebrew word is nifal, mm. which is the basis for the fallen celestial powers in Genesis 6 called
1: Nephilim. What? Additionally, where your Bible
4: says of Jewish origin... The Hebrew says, from the seed of the Jews. Oh, oh, oh. This means that there are hints in the text that no power, whether celestial or Amalekite, will do anything to contaminate the seed of the Jews oh. wow. without being judged by God as fallen ones, wow. like the Nephilim.
5: Wow. wow. We cool.
0: wondered which one would catch your attention.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, would you like to do another one? Yes. yes one's not really a shadow or a type. <laughs>
0: it's
5: more of a uh, fun reflection. Yeah. We're pastors. Mordecai not receiving honor for adverting an assassination plot against the Persian king paves the way for Mordecai to advert the extermination plot of his people. Yeah. Have you considered that? Save to go life, receive <coughs> nothing for it, <laughs> but it paves the way for the salvation of his entire nation. Oh, come All on. That's good. Man, what if uh, the disciple that he made had not been faithful to credit her teacher with where the information came from?
1: Ooh.
5: Story didn't work. What if Mordecai had been prideful over the course of the years that there was no recognition? Yeah. And decided that he needed recognition for all of his hard work in the kingdom? Uh-oh. The story wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. What if the Jewish people were just not that distinct and decided to blend in, go along, and get along with the rest of the world? Yikes!
0: story wouldn't work.
5: How important is it, Christian, that we learn from this beautiful and epic story so in our day and our time with the salvation we want to bring to God's people? Amen. Yeah.
0: Are you all learning something? Yes. yes. Would you like another one? Yes. yes. I'm just kidding. We're not going to give you another one. We do want to seriously but disguise as humor. I guess it's not much of a disguise if I tell you. Point back to verse 12 in what will be our closing minutes. This is Esther 6:12, and I'm going to read it through 13. Afterwards... Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. (coughs) We kind of thought it was worth noting that only a Haman-like creature has a bad day and then goes home to complain to his wife. Because this is also the beginning of your home's downfall if you do that. When you get home at night, it's to clothe your wife in the machut The royalty. And you do that through the word. We want to charge the men in this room. Don't you dare be such a small human being that you act like Haman and go home only to complain about how bad your day was. That's simply not a part of your job description. You are there to wash her in the word and clothe her in royalty and if the book of Esther didn't teach you anything else, it may just save your life. At this point, we'd like to turn it over to the pastors.
8: Were you guys greatly enriched by tonight? Oh, yes. Giving you clear perspective of what God is aiming at in His bride. One of the things I heard that is among many gems is that the quiet, submissive, adorned, and robed bride is that point in which God advances His plan. Drawing in. The culmination of the will of the king to conquer. Isaiah 61.10 came to mind for me. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. And as a bride adorns Herself with her jewels. Saints, what we participate in. And being the bride of Christ. Is that we are robed. With his righteousness. We're robed with his. Righteous deeds. And that will most certainly. Draw in an attack from. An accuser. An opposer. But each time that happens. We greatly rejoice. Because it is a certainty. That the salvation of God. Is going to be displayed. It's a certainty that the works of the enemy are going to be put underneath our feet. We have every reason to rejoice tonight. We have every reason to walk confidently in the righteousness that we get to participate in and yet as Gentiles participate in with the nation of Israel. Stand to your feet tonight. Stand confidently as a bride who is robed with his righteousness and knows the certainty of of outcome, whenever there is opposition and attack.
3: Mighty God, we love you. Lord, we allow our faith to rise tonight. Lord, seeing the intricacies of your word and how certain that we can be.
1: Lord, that as your bride, as we are being ever dressed and adorned with righteous deeds, Lord, that you will in fact bring about the destruction of
3: the enemy and the glorification of the righteous ones. Lord, we want to stand in confidence, Lord, knowing that your word, knowing that your plan, knowing that your kingdom is being closed upon the people in this room, Lord. We honor you, Lord. We love you. Lord, let us walk forth tonight with the confidence
8: that comes
3: from having our eyes set on you, our great king, house of your Malkuth is dressed upon us, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.